I always ask, how do I get paid to do the next step in business development? How can I get paid and start thinking forward to client buying things? Because many people project assumptions on what the market wants instead of actually finding out what the market is looking for and meeting the need so there's a demand. And then you have plenty of flooding money from the upfront because they want to buy what you have. And you have a demand, not a, not a supply. And, and people don't get that. And they project their assumptions narcissistically onto society and expect society to buy what they think is important. I always tell people, if you can't wait to get up in the morning and go and serve people, they can't wait to get your service. But you got to make sure it's something you're inspired to deliver. And you have to make sure that it's something that people want. We stand today. The Business Method with a shout out. The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics for location independence. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring successful entrepreneurs and high-profile people dissecting their business models. We dissect the different methods, tools, and tactics of high-performance online entrepreneurs and high-caliber people in a series format. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs in 100 days that have built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built location-independent businesses that produce over a million dollars and annual revenue and now we're interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business and influence income results economies and cultures there's a growing number of people building these caliber of businesses like this and we're going to figure out what it takes to make this happen now let's jump in today's show the business method Hey listeners, welcome to the podcast today and I want to introduce our guest, Dr. John Martini. Dr. Martini is a world-renowned specialist in human behavior, a researcher, polyglot, author of somewhere around 40 books and a global educator and is considered one of the world's leading authorities on human behavior, leadership, and entrepreneurialism. He studied over 30,000 books across all the defined academic disciplines and is the founder of Martini Institute. The books that he has authored are on a wide range of topics such as corporate and financial empowerment, self-development, relationships, and social transformation. He's appeared on Larry King Live, and if his name rings a bell, it is probably because he was also in the movie The Secret from 2006, and he regularly contributes to the Oprah magazine still today. He's the author of nine internationally best-selling published titles translated into 28 different languages, and he's also appeared in several documentaries. You guys, I really enjoy Enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. D. Martini. He is a brilliant, 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 brilliant mind. He is a believer in research and science and fact. And I really enjoyed talking to him because we talk not only about neuroscience and flow states um, and his own interesting, very interesting perspective on flow states and how they're uh, overhyped in many books in society, in our culture today, and what's really happening between a hyped up in almost false flow states between a real flow state when it's in alignment with a person's values and is a more long-term effective use of our neurochemistry and effective flow state. But he also talks about 13 different questions and points to consider when understanding your own values in relation to the time that you spent, your energy management, money, organization, um, relationships, and your own personal thoughts. And we talked to him about his daily ritual 
and how he meditates and how he can manage a schedule of speaking around 300 times in a year. A really insightful guy, you guys. I hope you enjoy the episode. I thoroughly enjoyed the interview. And without further ado, let's welcome John Demartini to the podcast. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show, and we're very excited to welcome Dr. D. Martini to the podcast. Dr. D. Martini, I have been a fan of yours since The Secret way back in 2006, and I actually used to watch The Secret once a week. That was one of my goals that I got from The Secret to uh, make sure that all of that amazing information sunk into my brain so I could create better habits and uh, figure out the law of attraction. So I've been following you off and on, and I've seen you speak, uh, I believe it's size seminars way back in the day as well. Yeah, we're happy to have you on the show. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great, and thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So I've followed you off and on over the past 13 years or so, and have seen you grow as a speaker and I guess a scientist and a thought leader, and it's been exciting to see your changes and evolution. I, I wanted to start the podcast off with this idea that you have and quote, I believe you said the human being has a natural competitive advantage when living according to its own values in its highest values. Do you mind diving into that a little bit and explaining that quote? I'd be glad to. It was Ricardo, who is an economist, who stated in a nutshell that each country, each city, each individual each region of the world has resources that give it competitive advantage. And that individually is not necessarily a natural resource, but is a human resource for the individual. And every human being has a set of priorities, a set of, of values that they live their life by. And whatever is highest on a human hierarchy of values, an individual is spontaneously inspired from within to fulfill and act upon and whatever's low on their values, they require extrinsic motivation and incentive and reminding to do. So in our highest values, we spontaneously act. Our lowest values, we need to be reminded to act. A good example is a young boy who is in with video games. If he loves his video games, he will spontaneously act on those video games. You don't need to remind him to do his videos. But if you ask him to do his chores, homework, or school assignments, you'll have to extrinsically motivate him and reward him if he does it, punishment if he don't, doesn't. So anytime we're doing actions that are aligned, congruent to our highest values, we spontaneously have momentum-building energies to go and achieve them. And because of our pulmonary nuclei in our thalamus, which is the gating filtering region of our brain, it takes in sensor information and selectively biases information in favor of what we value most. So we have a competitive advantage because we perceive, we make decisions, and we act more efficiently in our highest values, and we tend to procrastinate, hesitate, and frustrate in our lowest. So anytime we can set goals that are congruent and aligned with what we value most, we have a competitive advantage not only against our self when we're trying to live on somebody else's values, but against the world in general on any individual that's not living congruent. So that gives us a spontaneous, natural leadership emergent energy and expands our space and time horizons and builds us momentum and activates blood glucose and oxygen into the executive center, which gives us literally a, a more clear and inspired vision, more strategic planning, more desire to execute the plans and more self-governance so we're not distracted by impulses and instincts that keep us you know, playing small. 
So this, this gives us way, way more advantage by living congruently. That's why the old statement that if we don't fill our day with high priority actions and inspire us, it fills up with low priority distractions that don't. But those that do fill their day with high priority actions, they build momentum and they're, they, uh, they're unstoppable. What are some good ways or easy ways to know what our highest values are or just ways to check in? Because I think about this, if I get excited about something and I'm working towards whatever objective that is, I can work on it forever. But also sometimes I'll start to neglect other areas of my life and I've got to think, oh, I've got to keep this balance. So two questions are there. One, or what are some ways we can recognize our highest values and goals that we need to work towards? And also, how do we keep that in balance with other areas of our life? Those are good questions. I've been involved in the exploration of human values and human drive. You know, I've been speaking 47 years in November. Oh, wow. And so I've, I've been doing it a bit and, and values have been something crucial to self-mastery. And I've been fascinated by that. I've been lecturing on that for over 40 years. So I ask people what their values are. And I guarantee you by doing that, you're going to get 99% of the people telling you social idealisms. As Kohlberg, the psychologist said, most people subordinate to mother, father, preacher, teacher, convention, tradition, mores, and herd instincts and impulses from the majority. And most people don't actually stand out and think for themselves. As a result of that, if you ask them what their values are, they'll tell you what they think it should be, ought to be, supposed to be, got to be, have to be, all the imperative, deontological, dutiful responses. So I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in as objective uh, means of measuring values as possible. And so I put 13 value determinant criteria together. And the first one is how you fill your space. Things that are really, 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 really valuable to you, you keep around you. And things that aren't, you toss. So you keep things proximal, things that are valuable to you, keep proximal. And things that are distant, things that are not valuable. So if I gave you, for instance, something that you thought, man, I have no use for this thing, you'd put it in the trash. But if I gave you something that was incredible, a great book that was inspiring to you, you'd keep it around you and you wouldn't let it out of your sight. So whatever's valuable, you keep proximal and you keep in your intimate and personal space or within reach. The second value determination is time. You make time, find time, spend time for things that are really valuable and you don't have time, you can't make time. And don't want to spend time on things at all. So look at what you most consistently spend your time on. So I teach every day. And so I, I'm speaking and teaching daily and I'm researching in between that every day. So I don't need to be reminded to do it. It's spontaneous. So if you look at what you spend your time on and make time for, that tells you what you value. The third thing is what energizes you. Have more energy at the end of the day when you're doing something high in your value. You're drained of energy when you're doing something low. Like you say, when you're doing some things, you're just full of energy and you can stay on it all night. But the thing is, is the thing that energizes you, when you're doing something that energizes and you forget time, that's, that's a high value. The fourth one is money. You make money, find money, spend money, get money for things that are valuable, and you don't find money and don't want to spend money on things that aren't. So look at how you're dispersing your money and that tells you what you value. You know, when I was in my 20s, I was buying 40 to 70 books a week on average, and every dollar I was getting from earnings was going into education. So I could tell you that's what was valuable to me at the time. Today, it's mainly investments because I can get a lot of education online, but it, it varies over time. And so you have to look about every quarter, you need to update what these value determinants are indicating. The fifth one is where are you most ordered and organized? If you look carefully, the things that are highly organized in your life is valuable to you, and you don't get around to organizing things that aren't. You don't want to. The next one is where you're most disciplined, reliable, and focused. What do you spontaneously do that nobody ever has to remind you to do extrinsically? 
that tells you what you value. Nobody has to remind me to go and speak. Nobody has to remind me to go and do research. I've been doing that 47 years. So that's just a spontaneous action. But to cook, forget it. Last time I cooked was 24. That's 40 plus years ago. I delegate everything that's low in my values. So you got to look at what you are highly organized and what you're disciplined at. And I'm disciplined in my research and teaching because that's highest, but I'm not disciplined in cooking and driving. The next one is, what is it you think about, about how you would love your life to be that shows evidence of coming true? And this is not just anything you're thinking about, but the things that are showing evidence of coming true that you really want, you really are striving for. If I look carefully, I, I, I think about traveling the world and teaching, that's happening, that's got evidence. But I also think about being an international sex symbol, but there's no evidence of that. So those are fantasies, you can't write those down. The next one is, what do you visualize about how you would love your life? that shows evidence of coming true. Again, that's very similar to thinking, but it has a slightly different slant because it's in the visual cortex, but they should be congruent. They will be congruent if you're really honest with yourself. The next one is what do you internally dialogue to yourself about? What's your internal conversation about, about how you would love your life that shows evidence coming true? This tells you it. Now, if you're having internal dialogue that's self-depreciative, that means that you're pursuing a fantasy that's low on your values and not really what's highest because you don't get around to doing it, and you beat yourself up. But the second you set a, an affirmation that is congruent with the highest values, you build affirmative momentum towards it, and you take action and you achieve it. So you're looking for the evidence. The next one is what do you converse with other people about most, and what do you keep wanting to bring the conversations to? People come up to you all the time and say, you know, how's your business? How's your investment? How's your kids? How's your health and fitness? Find out what you keep wanting to bring the conversations to, what you want to talk about most, and that'll indicate it. The next one is what inspires you? What brings tears of inspiration to your heart that you can't wait to get up and do? And what's common to the people who are the heroes that have inspired you? You know, I might have been the Nobel Prize winners and the great thinkers and philosophers of the ages. So if I look carefully, those are the people that have inspired me, and those are the things that I am inspired by the most. The next one is what is your three most consistent, persistent goals that you have? The three most consistent, persistent goals that you have that you show evidence of coming true. My case, it's traveling the world teaching. I've been 151 countries teaching now. I full-time teach between 300 to 400 speeches a year. I, when I look at what my life demonstrates, your life demonstrates your values. I'm not interested in fantasies. I'm interested in what your life demonstrates. What does your actions show? That tells you it. So what are the three consistent goals that you have manifesting? The next one is, um, what is it that you love studying about, reading about, learning about, and listening to about most? What is it you spontaneously want to go and devour on the internet and learn about? You go to the bookstores, you get those books. You go on YouTube, you watch those videos. What's the most common thing that you can't wait to learn? Now, if I take three answers for each of those 13 value determinants and look at what those answers are, there'll be synonyms and, and uh, you know, similarities in the answers. And if I look at which one of those answers show up most frequent, second most frequent, third most frequent, those will be the best indicators of what you value most in life. And once you determine those, it's time to restructure your life by priority and fill your day with things that inspire you and delegate things that don't. Because you can't live an inspired life as long as you're doing low priority things that devalue you, scatter you, and are uninspiring to you. So that's a crucial component to mastered life and momentum building achievement and leadership. I absolutely love that. I do have a question on one thing that you mentioned throughout those, those 13 
points. You said money and the way we disperse and earn money, but you also mentioned that we need to update this every quarter. Could you elaborate on that a little bit more? When I've done value determinations, I've been doing it over 40 years, and I've been using this method. It's being used all over the world today. And what's interesting is many people, if they don't get an update on a quarterly basis, they can continue to set goals that wrap around what used to be important to them. But these things evolve. Your life's journey is a summation of your destinies, and the hierarchy of your values dictate your destinies, and the hierarchy of values are evolving. So when you're 0 to 10, you probably want to play. When you're 10 to 20, you probably want to socialize. When you're 20 to 30, you probably want to find a mate and a career. You're 30 to 40, you probably want to have your own business and have a family. So what happens is it's changing through time and you have to be adaptable and look at what it is because if you expect it to be what it once was and it's not currently what is, you'll lose momentum and wonder what's wrong with you because you'll be expecting to live in something that's not really your current values. Now, some values are pretty consistent. My teaching values have been consistent for 47 years. That's not likely to change, but there's some things that may change. My content of what I'm teaching has evolved. Uh, where I'm teaching has evolved, but you, you have to keep current with them and do it every quarter. I have a complimentary value determination process on my website, and I encourage people to do it every quarter and store it on there and look at the evolution of their values and try to be honest and objective as possible because it's only as valuable as your honesty. And uh, look objectively at your life, not what you fantasize or what you think it should be or what it used to be. And you also talk about within those values, this is how we end up on a scale socioeconomically and financially. Could you elaborate on that point a little bit more also? Well, the more congruent we are with our hierarchy of our values, the highest values, the, the more leadership we grow. And whatever that is, it depends on what that is. If you have a high value on raising a family, you may be sitting at home and raising a beautiful family, and they may someday be great leaders themselves. But that doesn't necessarily put you on a higher socioeconomic level. In order to put yourself on a higher economic level, we'll require that you do a greater service to people and make sure you take a portion of the income from that and buy assets that accumulate and value. Many people live in a fantasy. I've asked millions of people in live seminars, how many of you would love to be financially independent? And everybody puts their hands up in a fantasy. And then I ask how many of you are, and then most people put their hands down. Less than 1% achieve financial independence. Most people have a fantasy of the lifestyles of rich and famous, but the second they get money, they buy consumables that depreciate in value, and they don't ever buy assets that go up in value. And until a person puts their money into assets that goes up, they'll never have money working for them. They'll be working for it as its slave instead of its master. So you, your socioeconomics will be determined also by how you manage money and where money is on your value list and wealth building. I didn't have value on wealth building until I was 28. And at 28, I had a major shift on that. And I became financially independent within the next nine years. And I've been very financially fortunate since. But that's because I valued it. And I made sure that I didn't waste money on depreciables. And I didn't want to live vicariously through other people's brands. I want to build a brand around myself that people paid for. So if you're not dedicated to serving vast numbers of people, you're not dedicated to, uh, you know, raising the standards and opening up economic opportunities and job opportunities by building businesses, and you're not interested in, in buying assets that, that raise productivity in society, don't expect to be one of the fortunate uh, one percenters. Mm, that's a really good point. Because I think a lot of people, you know, there's not a lot of great education that, that teaches that concept because there's a lot of there's a lot of books and there's a lot of things out there that say oh here's how you become financially free but not a lot of people that are talking about okay these are these are the values and the habits uh, that are stopping you uh, and the economics that are stopping you from becoming financially free 
Paul Dirac, the Nobel Prize winner, said, it's not that we don't know so much, we know so much that isn't so. You gotta realize that just like most of our education is for drones, not for leaders, it's, it's to get workers to work as worker bees, uh, the average person never studies economics and, and wealth building and how to be an entrepreneur and how to serve people. That's not a typical education. And so people live in a fantasy world and they get in uh, fractional reserve banking, they get in credit card debt, and they basically go buy mortgages out of foolishness and they get cars uh, on uh, credit and they wonder why they're in debt most of their life. Well, these are all foolish acts that people don't know any difference. And until they finally get savvy, they're, they're going to keep having themselves burdened financially. And of course, the banking system and the educational system likes that because it keeps the economy going, people spending instead of investing. That the key is if you want to step out of that 99% and become different, and you have to learn the, the science, art, and philosophy of wealth building. What are some resources that, that people could check out to help them change those values to find financial freedom? Well, I can say that I did a little book called, uh, you know, How to Make One Hell of a Profit and Still Get to Heaven. It's a cute little book on, on overcoming the delusions of the religious ideologies that you're supposed to give more than take. That's, that's delusional. You know, any, anybody that's got any common sense knows that equity theory stands out. And anytime you're, you're trying to give without receive or trying to get without uh, giving, you know, it backfires. Narcissism and altruism both backfire and try to get you back into fair exchange. The only thing that's sustainable is fair exchange. So, you know, if you go and do a service and, and the person, somebody pays you less than what you feel you agreed to, you're, you're going to be narcissistic and demand it. If you do a service and you do less than what you agreed to, you're going to want to be altruistic to compensate. But if you do a fair service and get a fair price, you want to continue doing business. That's common sense. It's just basic economics. And so if a person gets uh, taught something that's delusional instead of gets practical, they don't do well in business. They, they live in a fantasy and they have to go through and learn past that delusion. That little book I mentioned, uh, How to Make One Hell of a Profit, is a good start. But there's many books on the market that I, I can't say I recommend. Charles Ellis did a series of books uh, on economics and wealth, personal wealth building. He's uh, well-respected in his work and his statistics. Uh, he did a book called uh, Winning the Loser's Game. I can recommend anybody reading that if they're wanting to invest. But uh, The Richest man, man in Babylon, the little book that teaches you how to save is a smart starting point because many people don't save. They think they don't realize that there's a law called law of entropy that Clausius in 1859 promoted in the thermodynamic principles. And he basically said that if you don't bring order to things, chaos takes over. When it comes to money, if you don't put money aside and put it into savings and put it into assets, it automatically gets absorbed by depreciable liabilities. And so if you don't take the money off the top and pay yourself first and put it into ordered systems methodically, it will automatically become unexpected bills eroding the potential to save. And people think, waiting, well, when I get extra, I'll save. Instead of saving, and you get extra. When you manage money wisely, you get more money to manage. When you don't, you get more money taken away. That's a basic principle of economics that most people don't get. And then they run the risk of uh, thinking someday I'll get there. But it's not going to happen unless you have a if you don't know where you are, you don't know where you're going, and you don't know exactly what you're going to do as a strategy, it's not likely to occur. I've, I've met a lot of entrepreneurs that get into the cycle of just reinvesting everything back into the business. What do you think of that 
Um, and how long do you think is a good time frame to do that before you need to start to break away and, and keep some for yourself, keep some savings and start to reinvest into your own personal investments? I don't recommend that principle. I think that's foolish. I've been doing consulting for nearly 40 years and I guarantee you that's foolish. That's what's very commonly done by gamblers and speculators, but that's not a wise investment move. It's wise to take a portion and earn it and set it aside, not for your lifestyle, to keep a moderate lifestyle, but put it into saving cash reserves. And then also um, you put some of it into investments and then put some of it back in. So you re return some to the business, a portion, some to earnings that give you uh, investments and some to keep on cash. When you go and buy and put money, all your money back in the business and you have an accelerated growth and you think, okay, I'm going to sell this baby and get rid of this thing and then make a fortune off it. The problem with that is that um, if they don't show any profits, they're not going to want to pay for something that has no profits. And so you're running the risk of thinking that someday they're just going to be excited about it as you are. You also had a high stress zone, probably aged during the process of doing it, and had sleepless nights with anxiety. If you look carefully and take the top 100 fortune companies on the planet, you'll look carefully, they have no less than 40% cash reserves. Some of them have 100% of an annual income in cash reserves. I mean, look at Bill Gates. I mean, they got a, they've got a one-year cash reserve. Apple's got $300 billion in cash reserves sitting in money markets. So the people that are smart know they have cash reserves and keep cash on the side. And I don't talk about cash under a pillow. I'm talking about at least money markets that are earning, say, 2.5%, which is what you can get today. They make sure they have liquid and they make sure they have investments and they invest in things that are corollaries to their company. And they also reinvest it. And every time you manage more more wisely the money, you get more money to manage. And that's a basic proverb. And I've seen it. And I've taken people who have tried to put all their money into it and burn themselves out and hoping someday they're going to get a return out of it and um, restructured it for them and changed their life and gave them their sanity back and actually ended up with a bigger return and a bigger company. Because if you have no cash reserves, you have high volatility in the business and people are scared of buying businesses that have high volatility ratios. So by having cash reserves, you reduce the volatility. Let me give you an example. If you have a, no money in the savings and you have a company that's making an average of $1,000 a day and you're working 22 days a, a year, I mean a month, and then all of a sudden, you know, your day, you have a $5,000 day one day and you have a $50 day the next day and you're all over the place. If you have no cash reserves, you're a manic depressive. But if you have at least 10 times the volatility or at least 90 days worth of liquid capital, you mitigate those volatilities, you stabilize, and then you follow strategies instead of emotions. And emotions destroy companies and strategies build them. Objective executive centers in the brain do better at building companies than any emotional amygdala. So you have to reduce the volatilities by having cash reserves. And foolish people that don't do that pay a price. So you want to make sure that you put a portion into savings, a portion into investments, and a portion back into your investment. Because if you're a small cap company, you don't want to gamble with small cap companies with all your money. You want to diversify it into stable companies also. So there's a basic formula for that that I teach in one of my courses. But um, you, you, it's, it's foolish to put everything into one basket. That's like an end run. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good point because especially like with online entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, startups and tech companies these days, they can just slap up a website, say they're in business. And I've seen so many people burn out because um, they don't, they don't have the long-term momentum and they're broke. You know, they're just getting by every month using business money to get by. 
you know, most people have this idea, how can I afford to do this? How can I afford to do that? And they're into debt thinking and they're leveraging off other people. And they think I can't get it done unless I get money from somebody. This is a, a in my opinion, a backwards. I always ask, how do I get paid to do the next step in business development? How can I get paid and start thinking forward to client buying things? Because many people project assumptions on what the market wants instead of actually finding out what the market is looking for and meeting the needs so there's a demand. And then you have plenty of flooding money from the upfront because they want to buy what you have. And you have a demand, not a, not a supply. And, and people don't get that. And they project their assumptions narcissistically onto society and expect society to buy what they think is important. What are some ways to, that you would recommend testing a market? Like if you have a business idea or searching for a niche or some sort of product or service that the market really needs where they could start a business and then already have the demand there. Well, there's, there's many market research systems that can be helpful, but you know, the best research system today is look at what's, what people are looking for and searching for on Google. Believe it or not, that's still a good market. I had a friend that was doing online, uh, you know, little programs and in, in businesses and he was searching for what people were searching for the most. And then he found people that had the best services to provide what they were searching for. Then he contacted them with a form letter to find out if he drove traffic to them, could he get a percentage? He had an acquisition cost of 15%. So he was basically able to get 15% of whatever he could drive them. So he was good at putting form letters together to get people to go and, and drive to the traffic to these companies. I was getting 15% out of, of doing nothing. And he was because he found out what people were looking for and found out who could provide a quality service to meet those needs. He never had to serve any needs himself. He just brokered the deal and got 15%. After doing that, he had about $20 million a year doing that. Not bad for a guy sitting in his underwear or playing a guitar most of the day. But he found out what people needed and then helped them find what they were needing. And he got a brokerage fee out of it. Yeah, I love that. If you were going to start a new business, say you went to zero and you wanted to test some ideas or ways that you would go about that to start over? Well, I'm the wrong guy to ask that because I already know what I'm, I, I don't try to get away from my core competence. My, my core competence is uh, learning and sharing. That's it. Outside that, forget it. I try to delegate as much as possible and I, what I do best is research and teach. And outside that, I'm, I'm not too good. I, and I travel well, I do a lot of travel. I've done almost 20 million miles in travel. So those are the three competencies. So I don't try to go outside my core competency. Many people go, oh, that looks exciting. I bet people will buy that. And that's not a match to what they are loving to do and they'll burn out doing it. So you need to find two things. What are the world looking for? And two, what is it you're inspired to do? If it's not high in your values and it's not high in their values, you don't have a match. I always tell people, if you can't wait to get up in the morning and go and serve people, they can't wait to get your service. But you got to make sure it's something you're inspired to deliver, and you have to make sure that's something that people want. I've been successful at teaching because I keep finding what people are wanting, and I keep delivering that, but it's also only in the area that inspires me. I don't try to get outside that core area. That makes sense. When you research, how do you go about your research methods? I can't say it's any more ingenious, but what I've been blessed to do is I've been doing it quite a number of years, so... I'm blessed to meet amazing people around the world. I've met great Nobel Prize winners, physicists, uh, anthropologists, almost every field that's been inspiring to me, I've met leaders in the fields. And I basically work to deal with them where anytime they come across cutting edge information, send it my way. So I've got about on average around 19 or 20 articles minimum a day coming in from leaders to try to keep me up to date. And then I'm also getting there on Google and all the other search engines to get me the information I'm looking for. 
it's not hard to find today if you go digging. And so I'm constantly researching on a daily basis. I mean, that's just what I do. I'm writing a textbook on nuclear physics right now and on one on, on sort of an astrophysical development of stars. You might think, well, why is that related to human behavior? Well, all of us come from stars. <laughs> We're star stuff. And so I'm, I'm constantly researching every day in, in various fields. Do you allow a certain amount of time to research every day or is it just whatever comes naturally? Well, I, I wish I could say that, uh, like I'm about to go into a, a program here starting tomorrow that uh, goes from 8 in the morning till 10 at night. So my research time will be from about 10.15 to about 12.30 at night, and then maybe at lunch and early in the mornings. So I don't have a lot of time during those programs, so that varies. Other days, I have programs like I have three or four podcasts today, and uh, I've got a couple meetings. Today is a little bit more lax, so I can do a lot of research today. I'll probably get a good eight hours in, but it depends on the day. But I try to minimum, get a minimum of two to three hours minimum a day, and then on, on my flights when I'm traveling, I get caught up. So I'm averaging at least three hours a day minimum of research. Very nice. Now, there's something I wanted to ask you about. The, there's a big buzzword called um, all around flow state and neuroscience of flow state. And I know you talk about the X factor and the X factor of charisma. Uh, I'm guessing they're probably pretty similar things. Do you know much about flow states and, and the science behind them? Yes. And I'm, I'm actually disenchanted by much of the bullshit that's being taught about it. Pardon me for just being blunt about it, but many people, see, if I can try to, to make this picture in people's minds, whenever you're living by your highest values and you're in a state of congruency, what happens is you now are embracing both the support and the challenge, the pleasure and the pain and the pairs of opposites equally in the pursuit of something that's deeply meaningful. And you have an eudaimonic, as Aristotle said, path of well-being. In that state, you have the greatest real true flow state. You're in a timeless, spaceless kind of state. But many people are confusing extreme dopamine and serotonin elevations in manic euphoric states with flow. And what they're doing is they have a manic episode and they think that's the flow state and then they go crashing and then they think, oh, I got to get back to that flow state. And this has been written about and many are confused about it. And even neuroscientists are swayed by that dopamine fixation. This has been misleading people and making people take all kind of high drugs to get that flow state. And in the process of doing that, you're, you're running a risk of volatilities from these without having absolute governance. So I tell people, don't confuse the manic, elated, dopamine-driven and serotonin-driven pride state and euphoric state with flow. This is a, just a manic episode. And many people have seen manic depressed people see when they're in that manic state, they think they're in the flow, but they're actually just manic and deluded. The real flow state occurs when you're graced, when you feel certain, when you feel poised, and you're really present and you're inspired, and you feel that you have lucidity and clarity, not mania. And most people don't know the difference between mania and lucidity. It's different. There's a different chemistry. You have a balanced chemistry under true flow states, and you have a highly polarized chemistry when you don't. And that's where people are getting caught in euphorias. And I've seen this many times and they can get addicted to that. And they're actually in a dissociated state from usually traumatic, painful experiences in their life trying to escape it. So I'm not a promoter of an escapic uh, approach to euphoria. I'm interested in the true flow state that has stood the test of time through the centuries. But there's a lot of books out there that are misleading people. And I, I just want to speak up about that. There is a super hype around it and, and people will have to learn the hard way, I guess. I, I took drugs in the 60s. I took just about every drug there was out there. I think I'm pretty good at understanding that. None of those competed with no, learning how to master my mind. I'd much rather be inspired and lucid and use my mind with grounded constructs 
than to, to dissociate myself and live in a kind of an escapism. And so, yes, I, I'm not against the idea of experimenting and exploring, but I, 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 you need to know the difference between mania and true states of flow. A manic episode sees a positive without seeing a negative. See, what, let, let's, let's develop it for a second. An animal in the wild, it has two things it's concerned about, prey and predator. And it has what is called a false positive on its uh, in perceptions of these two species. Because what's happening is if a predator is about to attack it, it has to err on the false positive side just in case or it could be eaten. It also has to err on the false positive side when there's food or prey there in case it has to chase it and run after it. Because it can't wait a few seconds later or it misses it. So in order to survive, we have a false positive selective bias confirmation bias and disconfirmation bias polarity on our perceptions. And we tend to get into a dopamine euphoric state for the, for the prey and sort of a, a do, an anti-dopamine or a histamine, testosterone, norepinephrine, cortisol state when the thing's a predator. And these states are, are impulsive and instinctual. Instinct away from pain, impulse towards pleasure. These states are survival states as an animal that must have food and keep away from being eaten. And the euphoric state is capturing the food and getting away from predator. The opposite of euphoria, which is dysphoria, is basically being eaten and, and having no food. So these states are in the amygdala, and these, these areas of the brain are there as a survival mechanism and are highly polarized. As the Buddha says, the desire for that which is unavailable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is the source of human suffering. So the second we think we get one without the other, instead of having objectivity where we need both, we have to have a predator around to keep us from overeating and to keep us fit. Because maximum fitness occurs at the border of support and challenge and prey and predator. When you have both of them, you have maximum fitness. And then there's also a state of mind when you're living by your highest values where you're embracing pain and pleasure. Like the boy who loves his video games, he's looking for the next more challenging video game. He wants the predator. He wants the challenge. That's the state that's uh, most conducive to mastery of life, fitness, and true poise and flow states. The brain is automatically trying to get us into the executive center. And right now, there's actually promotions going on to try to be hypocortical. They're going off to euphoric states. And this is foolish. So yeah, the, the euphoric state of that animal survival mechanism is what creates that incredible accelerated dopamine rush. And ancient man actually thought they were talking to gods. When there's a big challenge in our life and we have a freeze response, we, don't, we can't outrun it with flight and we can't fight it with fight, and we go into a freeze response, we dissociate into a euphoric state, which we think is a god that's made in our mind that's compensating for the thing we're frightened about, and the parietal temporal lobe lights up and people think they're talking to god and euphoric in the, this relationship, but it's actually a, just a dissociative state. And many people confuse dissociative identity states like that with religious experiences and flow states. And if they don't know the distinctions like that, they can get, go off on wild tangents. And I would say it's not just ancient man. There's still quite a few uh, modern men that think they're talking to gods as well. <laughs> they're in what I call the shamanistic, animistic stage of theological development. <laughs> nice. So quick question. Would you recommend for people that wanted to get into an authentic flow state and to be consistent with that, then to ask themselves or go through those, those 13 steps of values that you recommended earlier? I think that's an essential starting point. Finding out that one thing that is the highest priority, most meaningful, most inspiring, most fulfilling action that you have that gives you competitive advantage and prioritizing your day around that and sticking to that which you love doing most and delegating anything less and doing it in a way that serves people that has an income to pay for the delegations is wisdom. 
and then meditating in the executive center lucidly on how to do that more effective and efficiently builds momentum and builds that flow state and creativity and genius. Genius and creativity and innovation are born out of pursuing challenges that inspire you. And challenges that inspire you are solving people's problems on a global scale that are meaningful to you. And that's, that's where the flow state really is. That's where great geniuses are born and creativity is manifested. Do you have any daily rituals or meditation or anything that you do or practice to help you get into that state of mind? I can't say it's an, you know, an exact, this is what I do every day at a certain time kind of thing. But I, um, I do meditation and I meditate on pairs of opposites. I've learned a long time ago that it, whatever perception I'm having, it's always being compared in the brain with its opposite. There's a thing called memories and anti-memories, and the neuroassociative complex to make up a memory it has their opposites to keep the facilitation and inhibitions in the brain in equilibrium, to keep the brain from going into craziness. And so what I do is I, whatever I'm perceiving, I'm looking for its opposite, and the second I become aware of both of them, I become fully conscious. If I'm seeing only one side, I'm conscious of one side and unconscious the other, and I'm dividing myself instead of integrating myself. So the greatest thing that meditation does is designed for integration, not escape. I don't promote meditation for escapism. I use it to actually integrate whatever you're perceiving. Instead of trying to get an escape something in life and you think, oh, that's terrible. I want to get away from it. It's finding the magnificence inside it by going and finding its opposite that's associated with it. Then you're centered and you're poised and you're present and you're grateful and you're transcendent and you're not attached because we get attached to polarities. That to me is the wisest meditation because it allows you to see beyond from an overview effect onto the daily reactions that you normally judge and get caught in. It allows you to be lucid and more inspired and active instead of reactive. When you meditate, do you, are you listening to any music? Are you sitting in the lotus position? You have a 15 minutes per day? or All those things are useful. I mean, you can do breathing mechanisms. You can do visualization mechanisms. You can do sitting up in the lotus positions. I have nothing against those. I personally have found that no matter what position I'm in, I can get into meditation. No matter what sound is going on around me, I can still get into meditation. None of those external things have to interfere with a meditative state. So you don't want to just think, well, that's, that you can't do it without those things in place. You want to be able to transcend any of those limitations. I'm not against that. If you have some lovely music that you want to do that's meditative, fantastic. But eventually you're transcending it. You're not even aware of it anyway. That's a good point. Dr. Martini, we're interviewing 100 major influencers from around the world to talk about growing influence and then using that in a responsible manner. I'm curious if, if you don't mind chatting just a little bit about how you have grown your influence over the previous 47 years and how you manage that in a responsible way to make sure it is helping people create better positive impacts in their lives. Well, first of all, there's a, if you look very carefully, you'll find out that for every person on the planet with a set of values, there's somebody with an opposite set. No matter what you do, you're going to have people like and dislike what you do. You're going to be a hero and a villain. If you can't honor your hero and villain inside yourself, as Machiavelli says in The Prince, you can't master your life. So I don't try to be Mr. Nice Guy to everybody on the planet. That's, that's foolishness. You know, there's a law of heuristic escalation that shows that anytime you try to promote something, there'll be somebody trying to go against it. Pro-life, pro-abortion, pro-guns, anti-guns, pro-peace, anti-peace, this kind of thing. I don't get caught in those moral injunctions. Responsibility is an artificial thing that you give to whoever you give power to. 
So if you subordinate to somebody, you're going to think, oh, I got to be responsible to their value system. I'm interested in being an unborrowed visionary and follow something that my research points to. And if it sometimes perturbs people, but it's something that's useful, fantastic. If I'm not being crucified, I'm probably not on purpose. And so I, 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 I don't try to, you know, make everybody happy and pleased and, you know, try to keep everybody positive because I don't find that to be very empowering. I was dealing with the conflict in Northern Southern Ireland. The president asked me to come in and mediate a conflict there. And I recently did another one between Israel and Palestine. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sitting there and thinking, oh, I'm going to take one side and make these people happy. They got another side there. So I have to learn how to transcend the polarities and the moral injunctions that people with limited, narrowed minds project and realize that there's something more transcendent, as Montaigne described, something way more transcendent than uh, getting caught in a narrow-minded view. Because nobody really knows the repercussions of any action that anybody takes. It's as a ripple effect that goes to infinity. You know, I, I, when I go and do a talk, do I really know every single impact to every human being that I've touched? There's no way of not knowing that. And I'm sure it fluctuates based on the day. So I don't, I don't get taught, caught in that. I, I realize I'm a hero and a villain. I went through 4,628 different character traits in the Oxford Dictionary I found inside myself. I found myself nice, mean, kind, cruel, considered, inconsiderate, peaceful, wrathful, uh, open, closed, honest, dishonest at different moments in my life. So I gave up on the idea of trying to be one-sided and get rid of half of myself. I don't find that productive. And I gave up on the idea that I have to get rid of half of the world to make it peaceful. I'm interested in learning the art of communicating effectively in a way that helps people see a more integrated approach so they transcend their limited moralities and allow them to go on to a more universal appreciation and love of life. My influence came from me consistently being willing to teach, doing radio, television, newspapers, magazines, podcasts, webinars, uh, writing books, doing movies, doing every possible thing I can do that gets a media outreach to touch people's lives. We reach 5 billion, 300 and something million people now. I'm constantly doing whatever I can to get an outreach to do it. And I'm stirring things up at times and other times I'm, I'm bringing peace to people's minds. But I can't attach to either one of those because those are shallow compared to the bigger picture. I like the way you put that. One more question to wrap things up. Is there any projects that you're working on, type of people that you're looking to connect to, or any um, things coming up in the future that we could either, us or our listeners, can help you out on or support you in, in any way? Well, I'm, I'm constantly, uh, you know, doing my programs. I do the Breakthrough Experience, which I've done 1,072 times around the world. We've done that one in 64 countries now. I'm researching constantly. Any podcasts, any webinars, any, any way of reaching people that anybody may be listening to that can help me reach people, I'm receptive and I'm appreciative of because uh, I'm interested in just sharing research with people and, and letting them decide what they want to do with it. I can't guarantee they're going to be happy with everything I say or sad. I'm not really attached to that. I'm interested in giving the information that I know is as solid as I can, as authentically as I can to help people do something that, that I find in my research will empower people. Beautiful. Dr. Martini. we want to just thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing all your tips and tricks and wisdom with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. No, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. You helped me fulfill my mission. And we're going to wrap up there. Listeners, thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high performance productivity coaching and our five, six, seven, and eight figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. 
Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.